This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You've heard him on my show before. He is a prostate cancer survivor diagnosed at the age of 57. He initially had no plans to discuss it with anybody, but he soon realized that it was very therapeutic for him to talk about it and that it may be therapeutic for others. So he decided to share his story. On the line with me is author of the book, Prostate Cancer Strikes, Gogs Gagnon. Welcome back to the show, Gogs. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you for having me back. You're very welcome. And you have a little gift for my listeners, and we're going to wait a little bit for that. But uh, tell me why you didn't want to share your story. I know it's a devastating diagnosis, but initially you were a bit shocked by this. And so um, why was it that you didn't want to talk about it? Well, it took me a little while actually afterwards to realize why. And it, it really was, I didn't want to burden my spouse or my family with with the problem i i thought in some weird way that i was protecting them by not sharing my my feelings with them but it took a little while for me to to, to realize that afterwards why i shut down uh, but after i started to open up and talk about it 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 really was very helpful and therapeutic for me and it it, it made me feel so much more better to talk about it. That's great. And, you know, a lot of guys um, don't like to share their feelings. Uh, feelings is often the F word, I say. Um, <sighs> you know, so it's more difficult for men to share their feelings. In general, there are some guys who will wear their hearts on their sleeves. But, um, but it's also shocking to get a diagnosis of cancer. And I imagine it was for you as well. Absolutely. When I was in the doctor's office and he told me that I had cancer, Basically, I, I shut down at that moment, and he, he continued to tell me about my test results and everything, and, well, all I really heard was cancer and everything else was really a blur. <laughs> it, it really was an overreaction, of course, looking back, because I didn't even, I didn't even know what my test results were. I didn't know how, if it was low-grade, high-grade, or anything. It just, it's just when you hear that word cancer, it, uh, it was quite devastating to hear the words. I think it's a shock for most people. And, and some of the prostate cancer treatments, uh, which you outline in your book and um, talk about what you chose, can cause some negative quality of life issues for men, such as urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. And I get a lot of men in my clinical practices and, uh, and online, because I see uh, patients online as well, and they may be a year out and they may have not taken the advice of the doctor because their brain shut down. They didn't hear it. They didn't realize what the prescription of a PDE5 inhibitor was, the, the Cialis or Viagra. Often men will say, um, I didn't know, I wasn't going to be having sex, so I didn't take the Viagra. Um, did you find that um, as an issue in part of your journey? Um, I did, and I was given information about penile rehabilitation. I was given lots of information, and and I'm sure the doctor told me a lot about it, but I wasn't in the the state of mind to to process the information. And that's why I I think it's very important that I I recommend that if, if possible, you bring somebody with you to your doctor's appointment so that they could, you know, listen and take notes for you and help you through that process. So it wasn't until later that I, you know, I, I went back and I learned that here's all the things that I really should have been doing. And um, so I, so it's something that I really should have been at the beginning, but 
I just wasn't in that state of mind. Yeah, you make a great point because I think that's a critical piece of information for physicians to hear because they oftentimes will even say to me, I gave them the information, I told them, but we don't realize that sometimes patients' brains shut shut down in the time of stress. And when anybody hears the diagnosis of cancer, I imagine that would be as stressful as anything else uh, could possibly be in life. Uh, But you did start to share your story and you started to feel better, you mentioned. And and so you've really shared intimate details of your diagnosis, the surgery and your recovery. Um, You know, what was your choice of uh, treatment? Well, I, I was given given a number of options, and um, I chose surgery. And um, you know, looking back on it, I I think I made a quick decision, and it's something that I, I would recommend that that people don't make a quick decision. Even my my uh, doctor told me not to make a quick decision, and recommended that I go to a a, a, a support group and and do some research. But I I made that quick decision, and I think. You know, it, it worked out for me, but I think it's not a good way to do things. You shouldn't just make a quick decision and just hope for the best. You really need to step back and make sure that you you give yourself time to recover. Just from the hearing the word that you have cancer, that you're going to need some time just to get over that fact first before you jump into making decisions. So I I, I think I was was lucky as my my results have been good, but you know I, I really want people to you know if if you're in that position to try not to make a quick decision right and the term nerve sparing prostatectomy was that um nerve sparing yes. radical prostatectomy was that what you were yes yes that's what i had and and, and the nerve sparing is something that you really can't decide at, uh, until the, the you know if you if you decide you want to have surgery then the doctor will spare your nerves only if they feel that they haven't been yet invaded with cancer uh, if there's any risk that they've been invaded with cancer, then they will be taken out. Uh, so I, I, I was lucky. It was one of the first questions I had for my surgeon when I woke up in recovery is, did you spare my erection nerves? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it, it's a bit of a misnomer out there, the nerve sparing, because in speaking with urologists who've done this surgery for a number of years, they tell me, you know, it's it's really uh, a super highway of invisible nerves down there. There are so many of them that it's so difficult. And a lot of patients will still experience, and I don't think they realize this, they still may experience erectile dysfunction and urinary incontinence, even if they've had the nerve-sparing uh, surgery. So you that, you did suffer some of that as well? After? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and as you say, it's a highway of, of network of nerves, and some of them may be damaged, some of them may be cut, and some of them just may not work the way they used to. So even though they're there, they may not be doing their job, uh, and it may take years, or you may never recover. Yes, and uh, so, uh, mm-hmm. but those who recover best are those who have at least tried penile rehabilitation, which you mentioned oh, earlier. Um, Yes, that's a major help. You, you need to, to to have that penile uh, rehabilitation where you you need blood flow. And, and the problem is when the nerves are, are damaged and they're in a, a state of shock and they're not doing their job, then there's very little blood in the penis, very little blood flow. And the longer it goes without blood, then you'll have problems in the future. So you need to help stimulate blood flow. And that's something I, I, my doctor did tell me, but I never heard it. But I, he did give me the information, which I found out later. But. 
Right. Well, I'm glad you uh, got that information and found that out. Uh, that's great. So, Gogs Gagnon, you have a little gift for my listeners, don't you? Yes, I do. Uh, for today and tomorrow, uh, Canada Day weekend, I'm giving the electronic version of the book away free. Wonderful. And how do people get that? Uh, they just need to go to Amazon.ca and search for my book, Prostate Cancer Strikes, and they'll notice that the price uh, will be $0, and they can just purchase it for $0, and there's no limit. Uh, as many people could uh, get a free copy all the way until midnight on July 1st. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Gogs Gagnon, for your amazing work and for sharing your story. His website is gogsgagnon.com. Thanks for joining me, Gogs. Thank you very much, Maureen. Happy Canada Day. Yes, happy Canada Day. Thank you again. Thank you. So uh, have you noticed you're forgetting things? Do you have a history of Alzheimer's in your family? Well, I have another amazing person who's going to join me after the break to talk about her dad's journey with Alzheimer's. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. I know. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath, and it's my honor to be joined in studio by Jody Vance. You've heard her voice here, her esteemed voice on Chorus Radio for a number of years now. She also writes a column for the Orca.ca called The Middle and hosts her own weekly podcast, Unspun. Thanks for joining me in studio this evening, Glad Jody. to be with you. Now, you've shared your dad's story publicly about his journey with Alzheimer's disease. I have. My dad, um, very vibrant, healthy, fit, perhaps extra large-sized ego. Um, When he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he asked me as a journalist, uh, as his daughter, to speak publicly and openly about it. He was a teacher for a long time at Britannia High School, which is a big high school in uh, the Lower Mainland in Vancouver. Always an educator. He's like, share my story. Um, So I am. And it's personal and it's gut-wrenching, but I've learned a number of things along this journey. And I'm very grateful for those, uh, like my esteemed colleague, our esteemed colleague here uh, at Chorus, Linda Steele, whose uh, father passed, uh, a mother passed of Alzheimer's, and a father struggles with dementia. And it's, it's something that we can all learn from each other on. And if you think you're walking this path alone, if you've identified that a loved one is starting to show symptoms and signs, my uh, most recent lessons with dad bring me here to sit with you today because I wrote the column uh, last week on the middle at the orca.ca about uh, identifying signs and what we need to do in terms of taking action. And one thing that was notable in your blog was the fact that you said, if you notice symptoms in your loved one, get treatment right away. Now, a lot of people may lose their keys. So there, there are some things around memory that may be normal aspects of aging, but there are some other signs that may be pointing to dementia, Alzheimer's being the, the most common form of dementia. Things like missing words, forgetting people's names, unable to do daily tasks. So why is it that you recommend, especially in the face where so many people are afraid to get a diagnosis, so why do you recommend that people seek treatment immediately? And did that happen for your dad? And and what was the outcome if that was the case? Oh, that's the perfect question because no, it did not happen with my dad. Uh, I identified problems, issues, struggles, concerns, call it whatever you want. It is what was happening with dad. Um, And I identified it early on. And I put him on a list for assisted living. He lived alone at the time and he was, you know, skiing all winter and golfing all summer, had two homes up at Whistler. He was, you know, living the dream. 
but something was weird. I just kept having the same conversation with him every single time I called him. And I never show up at his home unannounced. And one day I did. And it looked like a scene from the movie Memento where the um, star of the show has words written all over his hands because his memory, short-term memory has gone. So he can never remember what just happened, which is my dad's house was covered in post-it notes because he's very smart and he's quite proactive. And he knew that something was happening which scared the living bejesus out of him. Of course it would. It scared me to think, oh, my God, this is happening to my dad. Um, so I spoke with my brother about it. I spoke with my dad's side of the family about it. I had him on the list at Tapestry, which is assisted living, which is lovely, by the way. I highly recommend that uh, if you need support. Um, May I ask you how old he was at this time when you noticed He was When I noticed it, he was 70. Okay. And, you and know, he's saying, 80 now. They're saying that Alzheimer's disease and dementia is actually a middle age. He probably, looking back now, knowing... Okay, let me just explain the the two things that I really want to get across to you because your question was so insightful. Um, Had I known then what I know now about the only thing you can do with an Alzheimer's uh, diagnosis is stall it. The only thing you can do is stall it. So you're afraid of the diagnosis because you don't want to shorten the quality of life and you don't want to put a stigma on your loved one and you don't want to put a label on them because what if it's not? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something else. If it is, there's no downside to medication. You go to the doctor. Nobody needs to know. Nobody needs to know. And what you can do is stall the progression of this disease. There is no rewind on it. So for people listening right now who are like, I can see that in my mother, or I can see that in my friend, or I can see that in my lover, and be afraid of it, be afraid of uh, talking about it, be afraid of being proactive about it, being afraid of the pushback you might receive on it, um, you're actually going to have longer with that loved one at the point they are now if you get medication as soon as humanly possible. Not enough people are talking about this, and I'm so glad we are, because I wish I had, because I was acquiescing. You know, my brother knows best. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't, you know, dad's fine. He just needs to golf more. Dad doesn't know where he is in the car, dude. He's across the street from his house, and he doesn't know how to get home. That's a problem. That's not getting better. And the drugs aren't going to rewind that, but they're going to stop him from being not only lost and not know how to get home, but not recognizing his kids anymore. Right. And did your dad eventually go on medication? Absolutely. And we took him to uh, the Alzheimer's uh, clinic at UBC. Uh, Dr. Philip Lee is unbelievable, where you can actually do um, clinical trials. You can be a part of clinical trials, which my dad opted in for. Um, Not sure whether or not that had great impact because Alzheimer's affects everybody differently. Some people decline in a matter of months and a year, and and my dad's decline has been much uh, stalled. However, I believe had we got him medicated at 70 instead of 76, we would probably be looking at more quality years of, of his cognitive ability now. And that's what people don't recognize is once the decline hits, it's devastating. It's devastating. Right. And there's a lot of people who are anti-medication, anti-big pharma. They Mm. don't realize some of the the benefits that a lot of these medications like antihypertensives and antidepressants have, um, how helpful they have been for many people. So you're really talking about a better quality of life for your dad, as well as for his family, the caregivers, and you are the caregivers. Yes, it is absolutely... I don't even know how to put it 
um, when you say people that are concerned about big pharma, I don't know what I'd be doing without Aricept right now where my dad is right now. Like it's bad now and it's going to get worse knowing people who have been here have been down the further down the path. Because every time I look at it, I'm like, God, this is awful. And now I'm wishing that I could go to God, this is awful from five years ago because it's so much better than it is right now. And the decline is real and it continues and it's devastating for families. And oftentimes siblings disagree and within families it becomes an issue and caregivers are exhausted. If you're a caregiver listening right now, you know this is probably harder on you than it is on the person struggling with the cognitive disorder. Because one thing that, like, bless dad that he doesn't know where he's at right now. He'd hate it. Right, exactly. I hate it on his behalf, but it is our reality. So we are at the point now that we have pulled those medications from dad because they're no longer working. Okay. But for a a solid seven years, Aricept um, has impacted my... It doesn't work for everybody. There are numerous drugs for Alzheimer's, uh, but Aricept is the most standard. And, and I want to be clear, it's not a treatment. No. It is not a cure. Nope. It is not going to change uh, your life and bring you back to your clear memory and the ability to do household tasks and work. It'll stall where you are at the time of assessment and... and um, getting those drugs available and into your system that if they work they will stall and maybe even only for a short period of time right but every day where we have a better quality of life is a better day than the one before the message is don't wait don't wait thinking that you're giving your family member, your loved one, a better quality of life by waiting. Right. And much like cancer, early diagnosis is key. Everything. And Jody, thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Your father is ever the educator. Tremendous amount of respect for him. And how's he doing, by the way? You know what? He's great. Uh, We just got him settled into his new home. I've learned that facility is the F word in caregiving. I did not know that. I used to call it a facility. And now I call it a home because that's where he lives. It's his home. home. And he's moved into a new space. It's awesome. He's settled in. He's calm about it. Um, So onward. I'm so happy. Thank you so much for sharing. Keep on sharing. Love your writing. Love your uh, blog post. Love your podcast. Thank love you. everything about you and love listening to you here on the radio. Cheers, friend. That's Jody Vance. And I am Maureen McGrath, and you're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. You may or may not realize that I have a clinical practice where I see patients or clients who are involved in challenging relationships. Sometimes they're involved in treacherous relationships. Other times they're challenging. Other times they're heartbreaking. But I want to talk about a particular type of relationship that is incredibly unhealthy, amazingly toxic, and heartbreaking and confusing. It is gaslighting or emotional manipulation that leads to self-doubt and a false perception of reality. And it is so detrimental to any romantic relationship. Of course, this term was coined after the 1944 film Gaslight, where a husband intentionally broke down his wife's sanity. And this type of behavior, this emotional manipulation is crazy making. There's no other word for it. So this term has remained at the forefront in the fields of relationship counseling and and psychology. And I, uh, in large part, 
educate people about this type of behavior because it hurts so many and it's a lot more common than you think. And typically it's sociopaths or psychopaths who uh, do, do gaslight in relationships and they do it for sport. They actually like this. They get a thrill out of it for whatever reason. But, you know, they want your light for their darkness. Keep that in mind. So you have been chosen. You have been chosen by them because you are personable. You are happy. You are a sunny disposition. You're a nice person. You're kind. You're giving. You're a people pleaser. So those are the types of personalities that are lured in by people who gaslight. And I have a few patients in my clinical practice right now who are trying to heal from gaslighting because it is a psychiatric injury. You heard me. It's a psychiatric injury. It is very damning. It is very difficult to get over. Gaslighting can happen in any relationship. It can happen also between parents and their children or professors and their students, but it's most common in romantic relationships. And, you know, there are some certain common signs of gaslighting and the psych- there's a psychology behind this dangerous dynamic. So gaslighting happens when you trust your partner so much that you are willing to deny your own reality. And what that means is that this person has literally come in, they have lured you in, they are too good to be true, okay? So if they're too good to be true, if you hear yourself saying that to somebody else, they're amazing, they give you compliments, they buy stuff for you, they may give you a job that you're not qualified for, okay? Um, you And also, you can rest assured that they've done this to other people before you, okay? You are not the only one. And if you found out other romantic partners of theirs or former employees of theirs, you will find out that there's a whole host of them um, that have done this. Um, the most common gaslighting is seen in infidelity. So it is common for one to bring up that their partner is having an affair, only to be shut down and questioned, leaving to self-doubt and insecurity. So so they are having an affair. They, they also have kind of some bizarre sexual or intimate practices, okay? Um, and so where it's um, just not, and, and we're, I'm not talking about uh, extramarital affairs because there's a, an issue in the relationship or somebody feels a need to be loved and cared for and they're not getting that in their relationship or they were drinking and they, you know, happen to um, have an affair, a one night stand or something like that. I'm not talking about that. It is that the, the person is sort of giving little hints that they're having an affair, but when that's raised by the partner, it's like, are you kidding me? You're crazy. There's something wrong with you. And there is a part of that. There's a lot of crossover here. There is a part of that in a, uh, in just an unhappy relationship. Nobody wants to be found out, but I'm not talking about those in particular. Um, so, but there is this sense, this gut, this intuition that something isn't quite right. Um, he would typically um, call when he's going to be late for work, but he doesn't. He seems distracted a lot. And, and this is a change from his initial behavior, which was overwhelmingly incredible and loving and romantic and just the best guy or woman you ever could have met in your entire life. And these people are people jumpers too, so keep that in mind. They're not going to keep you on the hook for very long um, They in that, that hook in terms of that luring in. Once they've got you, they know when they have you. They know when they are inside your head and they get inside your head. And that is the reason for the psychiatric damage. That is the reason for the psychiatric injury. Um, And so all of a sudden, 
You say you, um, you know, get lured in and it's amazing and you can't believe that you've met this person. And then they start acting, you know, strangely. They, the, as I said, the most common is seeing other people. And that's because they are people jumpers. And so they've seen, if you actually knew the truth of their history, you would have seen that they've done that 10, 15, 20 times before. They are typically smart people who do this um, to others. And they remember, they do it for sport. But when you confront that person and you say, hey, you know, this didn't seem right and that just didn't add up. And then all of a sudden it's like venom spews from their mouth and you're like, who is this? And so it's that piece um, that you think, oh my gosh, what happened to him or her? We need to go back to the way that it was. And obviously they're capable of that. So I must have done something wrong. This is my fault. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not thin enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not smart enough. Whatever it is, whatever negative self-talk. And that also contributes to the psychiatric injury that occurs. So what signs should you look for to identify if you are being gaslighted? This um, Gaslighting takes several forms, and each one makes the victim or the target. I like to say target versus victim because you have been targeted. You have been chosen. You've been chosen because you're on many levels amazing. Um, It causes you, the target, to question your own sanity. The five identifiable types of gaslighting gaslighting include withholding, countering, blocking or diverting, trivializing and forgetting or denial. Okay. Now those things can happen in relationships anyway on a watered down level, but when they happen, uh, they will happen big time and they are done intentionally to drive you crazy. So withholding is a type of abuse where the gaslighter pretends that they don't understand their partner's point, which allows them to effectively dismiss it. So, or make you repeat it constantly. So say you're frustrated because you're um, not making love as much as you were before. And they're like, what are you even talking about? You know, what is that? That means withholding. Countering is when a gaslighter invalidates their partner's point by claiming the partner has a faulty memory. That's not what I remember. You never told me that. Then they are countering. So if the if your partner comes home late from work or and you question them, they might be like, uh, you know, I get home at six o'clock every night. I don't know what you're talking about. So that's countering. Blocking or diverting is especially effective in making targets question their sanity by because they change the subject and dismiss the thought process. So if you feel like your partner, your romantic partner isn't helping out around the house enough, they may respond by changing the subject. Well, you've been actually shopping too much. You've been spending so much money. You've been out with your friends way too much. This type of thing is blocking or diverting. Trivializing. When, as I said earlier in the program, everybody wants to be heard. This tactic makes the victim or the target feel small by claiming you are too sensitive or that a certain subject of conversation is ridiculous. So they dismiss you. And, And they also will, you know, they'll find something that you're insecure about. So whatever your vulnerability is, they will just, or, or a small, or a, a bit of truth, they'll take a bit of a truth and actually blow it up and maximize that as well. And then there's always denial. And this tactic is extra, especially frustrating for the targets because abusers will pretend they have no memory of the situation that their partner, their romantic partner is upset about. So if you tell your partner that you're upset, that they um, you know, screamed at the neighbor because the neighbor had their lawnmower going or something. They might dismiss you by saying, he was 
fine with my yelling at him about the lawnmower. I didn't yell at him or, or that type of denial. So you can see all of these things will drive you crazy. And that's exactly what a gaslighter wants to do. So what do you do about it? You've got to recognize that this is the relationship that you're in. You do not want to be in this relationship. It is not healthy. It is toxic. You need to heal from your psychiatric injury. It's typically a complex PTSD that people are diagnosed with. And you must also get that person out of your head because they are in your head. And so one of the strategies that I give a lot of my patients is that tie a noose around the neck of your gaslighter and it's a visual and you toss them over, you know, in Vancouver, the Broad Street Bridge, (laughs) toss them over the Broad Street Bridge and visualize that every time they come into your head. Or if you're walking in a city, Calgary, Edmonton, and you think about them, they come into your head, look at a building that will also distract you and help you. Um, to deal with or get them out of your head. And you want to get away from them because you will be betraying yourself. Of course, occasional arguments or watered-down bits of what I talked about tonight are normal in any relationship. But these relationships are toxic. You will get sick. Uh, Psychiatric injury will manifest in physical symptoms, anxiety, heart racing, insomnia, feeling like they're on fire, skin stinging, weight loss or weight gain, uh, excessive sleeping, so you will not feel well. It's really important to recognize if you've been in a gas lighting situation. You can always email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, if you have any questions about this at all. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.